Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Saturday Burnt Toast and Coffee Show with apologist William Hemsworth on the Four Persons Network. William is passionate about teaching the faith. He is a convert that attended a Baptist seminary. He is a father and a catechist that will encourage you to live the faith, evangelize, and defend it. To call into the show, the number is 515-602-9655. Once again, the phone number to call into the show is 515-602-9655. Ladies and gentlemen, William Hemsworth. And good morning out there, everyone. Hope everyone is doing well. Good afternoon to those on the East Coast. Good morning to those everywhere else where I am in Tucson, Arizona. It is currently 9 a.m. Hope everyone is doing well out there. Got an interesting show for you today. As usual, we're going to go over the saint of the day. I'm going to read the mass readings for tomorrow. And then we're going to go, we're going to do something different. We're going to do an exposition of Jeremiah chapter 29 and its message of hope. So we're going to take a deep dive into a very popular chapter of scripture and specifically one verse there was one verse jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11 which you guys will all recognize once we get to that point and you're going to realize it's not really about you and for some that's maybe a hard fact to understand but we're going to discuss that chapter it's a very powerful chapter and it's a chapter that not only gives israelites hope but it really it's going to give us a lot of hope as well especially with everything that we have going on in today's world. But let's go ahead and start off with today's saint of the day. Uh, today's saint of the day is Saint Olivia. Now, according to legend, Saint Olivia was described as the beautiful 13-year-old when the Saracens captured her at Palermo, Sicily in the ninth century. And so she was deported to Tunis where she began to perform miracles and convert Muslims to Christianity. Uh, they feared her power, though, and they tried to get rid of her. And so her captors abandoned her in a forest, hoping that, you know, the wild animals would just devour her and kill her. Uh, some hunters found her and took her themselves as a slave, but she converted them to the faith. Uh, Muslim authorities arrested, tortured, and eventually beheaded her. And at the moment of her death, her soul was seen to fly to heaven in the form of a dove. Now, of course, remember, this is according to legend. And so she has been honored in Carthage and Palermo and was held in great esteem by Christians and Muslims. Uh, the Mosque of Tunis is called the Mosque of Olivia. And Tunisian Muslims say that who speaks ill of her is always punished by God. And so St. Olivia is considered a patron saint of music and also the patron saint of Palermo, Italy. So St. Olivia, pray for us. All right. Tomorrow's Mass readings. Tomorrow is the Solemnity of the Body and Blood of Christ, or a, you may also know it as Corpus Christi Sunday. It's also the memorial, for those that don't know, of St. Barnabas the Apostle. Let's go ahead and go over these readings, though. Um, first reading is from the book of Deuteronomy. That's from chapter 8, verses 2 through 3, and 14 through 16. Moses said to the people, Remember how for 40 years now the Lord your God has directed all your journeying in the desert so as to test you by affliction and find out whether or not it was your intention to keep his commandments. 
He therefore let you be afflicted with hunger and then fed you with manna, a food unknown to you and your fathers, in order to show you that not by bread alone does one live, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. Do not forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that place of slavery, who guided you through the vast and terrible desert with its seraph serpents and scorpions, its parched and waterless ground, who brought forth water for you from the flinty rock and fed you in the desert with manna, a food unknown to your fathers. Now, my friends, if you joined the show last week where we talked about the Eucharist, we talked about how the Eucharist was the fulfillment or the manna, if you will, was the prefigurement of the Eucharist. And you may also recognize something very familiar in this passage as well. Um, Moses says, you know, to show you that man, that not by bread alone does man live, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ used these very words to ward off temptation from the evil one when he was fasting in the desert before his public ministry, just in case you didn't make that connection. Our responsorial psalm comes from Psalm 147. Glorify the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children within you. He has granted peace in your borders. With the beast of wheat, he fills you. He sends forth his command of the earth, swiftly runs his word. He has proclaimed his word to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not done thus for any nation. His ordinance he has not made known to them. Hallelujah. The next two readings, my friends, we covered in depth last week on our show. So I'm just going to read the readings. And if you want to hear an explanation of them, go into the archives and look at last week's episode of Burnt Toast and Coffee. But uh, this reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 through 17. St. Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the, blood, in the body of Christ? Because the loaf of bread is one, we, though many, are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. The gospel reading comes from John chapter 6, verses 51 through 58. We know this as the bread of life discourse. It says, Jesus said to the Jewish crowds, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. The Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, unlike your ancestors who ate and still died. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And like I said, my friends, we went over John chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10 quite extensively in our show last week when we talked about uh, the Eucharist, whether it was a symbol or the body and blood of Christ. So 
you have questions on those passages, go check out last week's episode where I go in depth about it. So Jeremiah chapter 29. Excuse me, I had to get a sip of my coffee. There is a reason, after all, this is called the Burnt Toast and Coffee Show, because I love my coffee. All right. So the book of Jeremiah is filled with tragedy, beauty, and redemption. And Jeremiah 29 takes place after the, ex- the exile of the people in Babylon. So in 597 B.C., King uh, Durachin surrendered to the conquering Babylonian Empire, and the nobility were exiled to Babylon. Now, to understand the context of Jeremiah 29, let's take a look, let's take a look back at chapters 27 and 28. Those chapters discuss the judgment of false prophets who were spreading lies. This theme continues in, tra- in chapter 29, as false prophets appeared to the exiled people and were spreading false ins- inf- they're spreading false information about the length of the exile. Now, the background of the text is one of the themes of the Old Testament. You know, the people of Israel strayed from the covenant they made with God time and again. Now the time has come for punishment, but there's hope. In fact, Jeremiah 29 is one of the most help, the most, I can't talk today, my friends. Ah, excuse me. Jeremiah 29 is one of the most hopeful passages in Scripture. This message of hope continues in chapters 30 through 33 with the promise of a return to the land after the time of exile is over. Now, the contents of the chapter, of chapter 29, take place via a series of letters from Jeremiah to the exiles, and then the exiles are writing back. Within these verses, we see the prophet encouraging the exiles to raise their families, grow gardens, be fruitful citizens, and work for the benefit of the land they're in. Now, the chapter is a refutation of false teachers and prophecy. It's an urging to be a good witness to nonbelievers and trusting in the promises and mercy of God. God is faithful to his promises, and this gives us strength to endure in the present. Now, chapter 29 of the book of Jeremiah starts off a little differently than other chapters. In verse 1, we're treated to a description to whom this letter is written. It's written to the priests, elders, and prophets who were exiled in Babylon. Right away, we see that some were left behind in the homeland, and Jeremiah was among those who were left behind. It was a common practice in the ancient Near East to deport the leaders of a city or country Uh, for better control of the region. And we can see a pretty vivid description of those who were deported. Um, It was recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 10 through 17. This communication of three letters that takes place in Jeremiah 29 also shows that communication was allowed between the exiled and and those who remained. There were a couple ways that this communication would have occurred. Now, one way was utilizing a merchant that was traveling on established trade routes. The other, and perhaps the most common, was through Babylonian officials who were traveling back and forth on official business. Now, in Jeremiah 29, verse 2, we are told who was taken into exile. And it, it goes along with what we see in 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 10 through 17, but with one exception. This passage tells us that the metalworkers and craftsmen were also taken to Babylon. Now, this is a very interesting annotation. After all, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, 
after all, it would Jerusalem would need some of these skills for upkeep and routine maintenance, right? Or at least one would think. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was smart, and he took these skilled craftsmen to Babylon so those left in Jerusalem would not be able to manufacture weapons. Now, this was done, obviously, to prevent an uprising. So who carried this, this letter from Jerusalem to Babylon? In verse 3, we're given the answer. It was carried by, quote, Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah. Not much is known about these two individuals, but we get some clue back in chapter 26 of Jeremiah. The Shaphan family, of whom Elisah was part, was influential in upholding the reforms of King Josiah. Now, an inscription of Anakin, the brother of Elisah, was found on a seal from the time of Jeremiah. Since they were supporters of the reforms of King Josiah, they would have supported the work of the prophet Jeremiah. Gamaria is an individual of whom not much is known, but there is a clue in 2 Kings. In 2 Kings 22.4, we read, quote, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people, end quote. Hilkiah was the high priest during the, king, during the time of King Josiah and was also sympathetic to the message of Jeremiah. There is a Gemariah uh, that is mentioned also in Jeremiah 36.10, but it's not the same individual. Now, it was commonplace for delegations to be allowed to communicate, and there, but there's a question as to why. In modern warfare, it's a common strategy to divide and conquer. However, in Jeremiah 29, it, it the chapter makes it clear that those who were in exile were not slaves. They were allowed to communicate and keep informed of what was happening in Judah. Now, likewise, King Zedekiah was not allowed to forge those uh, who were in exile. Since there was regular communication, this encouraged cooperation from King Zedekiah to pay tributes and loyalty to Babylon because of those who were exiled there. Now, beginning in verse 4, uh, the contents of the letter of Jeremiah are introduced. Uh, the authority of the Lord is called on in verse 4, so the recipients know that the words are from Yahweh, and not just a matter of like some friendly letter or correspondence. The contents of the letter, I have no doubt in my mind, were shocking to the recipients because it asked for cooperation with their Babylonian captors. The letter encouraged the people to raise families, build homes, grow gardens, and work for the prosperity of Babylon. Now, this message was practical in many ways. First and foremost, it was an acknowledgement that the Lord had acted through Nebuchadnezzar to punish the people for their disobedience. It was the will of Yahweh that they were there. Secondly, just because they were in exile did not mean that they no longer had a mission. Yeah, they were being punished for sin and disobedience, but they still had a responsibility to show the truth of the true God to a pagan nation. To accomplish this, Jeremiah tells the people to settle down and live their lives. Not only, lives their, not only live the lives for themselves, but to pray to the Lord for the benefit of those around them. Throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel were called to be a light to the nations, and this would continue even in exile to Babylon. Furthermore, Jeremiah writes and tells the people to marry and to make sure their sons and daughters marry. They are commanded to increase in population and not decrease. 
Just as the Lord commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1.28, he tells the people in Babylon to do the same. Now, it shouldn't come as a surprise that Jeremiah mentions planting gardens and enjoying the produce. Babylon was, and in some respects, is still known for its gardens. They symbolized the blessings and the abundance of the gods, and they provided for vital income in trade of produce and even in leather. The gardens that the Jewish people would grow in Babylon would symbolize the same, as would an increase in descendants. However, agricultural faithfulness, no, the gardens, for example, symbolize something much more than food or goods. It's also a sign of covenant renewal. So in these modern times we're living in, it's hard to imagine what it's like to be taken away from our home. The people of Israel entered into a long-awaited promised land like we read about in the book of Joshua. But time and again, they transgress against the covenant and they transgress against the covenant that they had with the Lord. As a result, they were delivered into the hands of the Babylonians. They were the enemy. There were some who rebelled. However, they did not only rebel against the Babylonians, but against God, since the Babylonians were his chosen instrument. Jeremiah 29, uh, verses 7 through 9, starts to lay this out as Jeremiah tells the exiles not to believe the false prophets that had risen up among them. Now, there is a possibility that there, there was some level of political duress in Babylon, and some saw it as a sign that the exile may be short. Now, like I mentioned before, Jeremiah wrote telling them to be fruitful and make themselves at home. So in essence, he's telling them. He was telling them this to dispute the theory that the exile would be short. What the false prophets were telling the people was contrary to what was being told by Jeremiah. One was right and one was wrong. There's no two ways about it. These false prophets were encouraging the people to be uncooperative. They were encouraging them to political unrest and asking for them to wish for the destruction of Babylon. Even in exile, they're being disobedient. And since they were saying something contrary to God, their fate is sealed. And this confrontation would escalate in Jeremiah 29, verses 15 through 32. This motif of good and bad prophets bring to mind an early account in Jeremiah 24. In that chapter, Jeremiah is shown two baskets of figs, with one being good and one being bad. The exiles are the good figs, as they are destined for good while Zedekiah and the false prophets would fall under the bad figs. Now, Jeremiah 29.10 does not only specify the length of the exile, but is also about the salvation of the people. It begins one of the most hopeful sections in all of Scripture. As as 29.10, in 29.10, the Lord says he will visit, and in 29.14 says he will bring the people home. In Jeremiah chapter 28, the false prophet Hananiah predicts that the exile would only last two years. He contradicted what was being said by Jeremiah, and the false prophets in Babylon were doing the same. So Jeremiah 29 verse 10 tells us that the time of the exile will be 70 years. Just a little bit more than two years, right? What is interesting is what comes after this period is given. Jeremiah writes, quote, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, that's he says, so the number is not arbitrary, and it's saying that the exile will last for roughly three generations. Moreover, this period of 70 years would be about the year 520. 
which is right before the Persian Empire would conquer Babylon. The Persian Empire would give the order to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and send the people home. The Lord will visit the righteous remnant, and he will lead his people home after this 70-year period. It is a display of the initiative of God with his people as he will visit them. The Hebrew word used for this phrase is a call to action. It is a call to action to pay attention, recognize what is happening, and a call for genuine conversion of heart. One of the most hope-filled passages in all of Scripture is Jeremiah chapter 11. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. And though it's used in an erroneous way by most, we see the mercy of God and the love he has for his people. God has a plan. And if the people submit to him and his plan, it will all come to fruition. Guys, you know the verse. Here it is, Jeremiah 20 and 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Sound familiar? It's a beautiful passage. But it was written for those who were in Zion. This passage will become the centerpiece for Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33, which is known as the Book of Consolation. Like I said before, the passage is one of hope. This hope is reiterated with a literary device known as an inclusio. This device uses the same or similar words at the beginning and the end of the unit to drive the point home. This promise of a future and hope is somewhat lost in our English language because it's the language of shalom, a perfect peace that can only be found in God. The message of hope continues in Jeremiah 29 verses 12 through 14. Jeremiah has written the words of hope, the perfect shalom that came from the Lord. The Lord tells the people to seek him, and he will be found. And in verse 12, the Lord tells the people to call upon his name. Now, of course, this is much more than simply saying the name of Yahweh. The people are to turn to him with all their heart, worship him in prayer, and with a new heart that is changed by God. This verse is important because in Jeremiah 11:14, the Lord told Jeremiah not to pray for the people because he would not listen to their prayers. This was the result of a broken covenant between God and the people. But Jeremiah 29:12 renews the communication. In being restored, the people can once again pray to the Lord and their petitions will be heard. The verse that follows requires a little more explanation. Jeremiah 29:13 says, "You will seek you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart." On the surface, it seems pretty self-explanatory. But let's explain. So initially there is a carryover from verse 12 as the Lord says, "If you seek, you shall find." The word translated as when has the potential to mean a couple different things as it is a Hebrew particip- uh, participle. There's a temporal option as the Lord will be found temporarily, or the causal, which is more permanent. The people will find God because they are seeking him. The word for heart in verse 13 requires an understanding of ancient Jewish forms. The heart was much more than the organ that pumps blood to the rest of your body. It is what the Jewish people called the seat of volition, and it is where one chose to obey God or not. Choosing to seek the Lord is a heart-changing proposition, and it's there where he can be found. Therefore, it's permanent. 
Verses 13 and 14 have aspects of parallelism, which link the two together. This is seen with the use of phrases like, you will seek and you will find. However, the parallelism that is seen in verse 14 adds to the previous verse. In verse 14, the Lord promises to restore the fortunes of the nation of Israel. This passage speaks of the land and all will be brought from the nations that they had been driven to. The word driven in verse 14 is one of the keys to a proper understanding of this verse. It is the Hebrew word nada, N-A-D-A-H, and is used by Jeremiah and Ezekiel to describe the people going into exile. However, it goes deeper and denotes that the reason for exile was divine judgment because of disobedience. This verse also reflects the language and diction used in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29, where Moses is telling the people to seek the Lord with all their heart and soul. So, after this inspiring message of hope, Jeremiah turns to the false prophets in Babylon. Now, initially, it seems that Jeremiah is quickly changing the subject to bring up a topic of doom and gloom, but that's not the case at all. The false prophets were predicting a quick return to their homeland. But there is only one true prophecy. Jeremiah 29:15 through 23 describes the Lord pursuing the false prophets with famine and sword. There was a message of hope, and that stands. But there's also pronounced judgment on those who have led people astray. Here we get two of these false prophets mentioned by name. This happens in Jeremiah 29:21, where the text states, quote, Ahab, the son of Kolai and Zedekiah, the son of Messiah. Beyond this, beyond this mention, we know nothing more than they were saying false words in the name of the Lord and that Nebuchadnezzar burned them in the furnace. We do know that Ahab was not the king mentioned in 1 Kings and that Zedekiah was not King Zedekiah. We also know that they were spreading false prophecies, which was punishable by death under the Torah. Now, though capital punishment was not carried out by Jewish authorities, it was carried out by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it's not clear why the king had them killed, but we can probably assume it was because of political insurrection since they thought the exile was going to be fairly short. These, prophets, these false prophets were predicting that restoration was imminent and telling people not to cooperate with Babylonian authorities. So in the end, the false prophets suffered a, a fate, which is death. The people were punished because they had not believed the true prophets that the Lord had sent time and time again. Now, the end of Jeremiah 29, 23 reads, I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares the Lord. Though these false prophets thought they were getting away with their lies, their heart was known to God. The Lord was a witness to their actions. The word I in this passage is emphatic, and each phrase is meant to reinforce the other. The death of these two false prophets would be used as an example in Babylon. The text says that they were burned in the fire, but technically the word means roasted and was a much more painful death. Among the exile, the names of these two false prophets would be an object of a curse. Now, another false prophet to the exiles appears in Jeremiah 29:24. We're told that his name is Shemaiah of Nehalem. 
Shemaiah wrote a letter to the temple priest in Jerusalem asking that Jeremiah be put in the stocks and censored. The reason for this is because of Jeremiah stating that the exile would be long compared to what he had been prophesying. Now, we don't know much about this figure, but we do know that there is no relation to the figures of the same name mentioned in the books of Nehemiah or Second Chronicles. What we do know is that he further disrespects the prophet of God by calling him a madman in verse 26. Now, in Jeremiah's time, this charge was super serious, and one could go to prison for being a madman. Prison time is nothing new for Jeremiah, as he had been in prison for speaking the words of the Lord already. And we could read about this in Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 1 through 2, which say, quote, Now Pashur the priest, the son of Emar, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesy, prophesying these things. Then Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the, that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord, end quote. Shemaiah wrote the letter to Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, who was a priest, but at the very least an official of the temple. Now, doing this was a break in protocol, and Zephaniah did not take the letter very seriously. Now, the letter that was written, though, did, re did reach its destination. What's interesting is that Zephaniah reads the letter to Jeremiah, so it backfires on Shemaiah. Now, this indicates that Zephaniah was friendly to Jeremiah, right? Now, or maybe at the very least, maybe just a supporter of his mission. Either way, either way, he read the letter to Jeremiah. And this sequence that follows is the third letter that makes the rounds in Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah responds with the words of the Lord, but does so in a tone and diction that emphasizes the extreme displeasure of the Lord. Jeremiah not only lied to the people about Jeremiah, but he persuaded others to trust in the lies that he was propagating. If it was only him believing and saying this, it would have been bad enough. But he corrupted the minds of those around him, and they started spreading the lie. Now, what's the punishment for this crime? After all the other two false – remember, the other two false prophets were roasted in the furnace by Nebuchadnezzar, right? Verse 32 gives us the answer to what happens to this figure. Quote, Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will punish Shemaiah of Nehalem and his descendants. He shall not have anyone living among his people, and he shall not see the good that I will do to my people, declares the Lord, for he has spoken rebellion against the Lord. So this false prophet will be deprived of any descendants beyond those who are already living. His bloodline is gone. In our modern world, we lose, this serious, we lose the seriousness of this passage because, remember, Scripture says in Psalm 137.1 that children are a heritage of the Lord. To not have a child during this time would mean that you were cursed. Now, essentially, this was the price for lying against Jeremiah and against the Lord. This was a steep price to pay, but the wages for the sin will get a bit higher. He and his family will die in exile and will never, ever see the promised land again. Let's reflect on this chapter a little bit. Chapter 29 of Jeremiah um, has many things that we could take from a theological viewpoint. The first thing we could take from it is the way the prophecy is transmitted. The Hebrew word for, the Hebrew word sefer, okay, S-E-F-E-R, is one that is translated into English as book. However, the English rendering, as happens, um, loses full sense of the word. 
The Hebrew word means a document, letter, or scroll. This is important because sometimes we look the scripture in its neatness and think it was always contained within a scroll or codex, right? Now, sometimes that's true, but in Jeremiah 29, we see it communicated via three letters that were exchanged from Judah to Babylon and back again. Uh, the Lord communicates his words in a variety of ways, and this chapter in Jeremiah is a reminder of that. It's a prophetic missive that brings flexibility to an otherwise traditional method of communication. So it's important not to paint the Lord into a theological box. I think sometimes we tend to do that. Now, this isn't to say that we ignore how God reveals himself. Remember, he reveals himself in sacred tradition, sacred scripture. Um, but the Lord gives several examples through scripture of communicating, doing things in ways that are out of the ordinary. Uh, the false prophets in this chapter prove this point in a unique way. The people of Israel were chosen by God, and the Lord made many covenants with them. You know, most notably the Mosaic Covenant on Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and all that. So the book of Deuteronomy in chapters 20 through 30 outlines the blessings for following the law of God, as well as cursings for not doing so. In addition to these, it also shows the renewal of the covenant and the prosperity that comes from turning to the Lord. The people of Israel, essentially, guys, they took the Lord for granted. And how often do we do that? So they took the Lord for granted and knew that he would always be there. So at, when we go through the Old Testament, it's easy to see this familiar and sad trend. It begins in Exodus 32. The story of the golden calf is familiar. But what does it have to do with Jeremiah 29? Well, what we read in Jeremiah 29 happens as a result of idolatry. They fell into the sin of idolatry over and over again, but it was not always a golden calf. Sometimes... It was child sacrifice to Moloch, as Jeremiah describes in Jeremiah chapter 7. Yes, my friends, the ancient Israelites participated in child sacrifice. You can read about it in Jeremiah chapter 7. It's horrific. Now, despite these horrific, this horrific practice and even having an open-air shrine, the Lord provides hope. This is something that we could look in our own lives. Like the Israelites, we've repeatedly sinned and committed idolatry in one form or another. There's hope. And this hope begins in the Old Testament and is fulfilled in, in the New Testament in the person of Christ. This hope begins in Jeremiah 29:11 and continues in the book of Consolation in Jeremiah 30-33 and to Christ himself. Jesus quotes the prophet Jeremiah more than any other. There is a unity. There is a unity there. We see this especially at play in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience. He described Jesus as the new Moses. And in chapter 16, he brings Jeremiah to the forefront. There are two other inferences to Jeremiah, as one is at the beginning of the birth narratives and the other at the end of the life of Christ. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14, like I said, and I've hammered this home a few times, is the most hopeful passage that is seen in the chapter. It is the promise of hope. And yet, it is one that is often taken out of context on almost a daily basis. This is about the restoration and the new covenant that is forthcoming. Jeremiah 29, 13 describes the Lord telling the people to seek him and he will be found. Jesus essentially says the same thing in Matthew 7, 7. There are many parallels between Jeremiah and Jesus, such as both being rejected, they fear the fate of the people, and in different ways, God left the temple. However, there's another connection that may go unnoticed. 
It has to do with the Great Commission from Matthew 28. This passage is memorable as they are the last words of Jesus before his glorious ascension. He tells his disciples to go to the ends of the earth, teaching everything that they've been taught. This was not a command to stay in their neighborhood or talk, talk about Jesus with their friends, but it was a call to action. It was a call to get uncomfortable, go somewhere you may not want to go and spread the gospel. In Jeremiah 29.5, Jeremiah writes something similar, but not in so many words. He tells the Jews in the diaspora to build and plant among the people of Babylon. By doing this, the people were able to testify to the goodness and mercy of God, though they were deported to Babylon. This is seen playing out in the book of Daniel, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to worship the golden statue. By not doing so, they were thrown into the furnace, just like the false prophets in Jeremiah 29. But unlike them, a theophany occurs, and Christ is among them. Many converted from their witness, and it started with Jeremiah imploring them to live their lives, worship, and plant. From an application standpoint, there is much that we can learn from this passage as well. Some of it falls into spreading of the good news and was that was mentioned just a second ago. However, there's a deeper understanding that God's time is not our own. There's a tendency to want instant gratification. This was the same phenomena that happened in Jeremiah's time. False prophets arose and tickled the ears of the people. Hello, Joel Osteen. This happens today. And my friends, for anyone who's a teacher out there, a catechist, we will be held accountable for how we convey the message. Are we telling the truth no matter the consequences? Or are we saying what people want to hear no matter how much damage it's going to cause? So like Jeremiah, we should want to do the will of God no matter what it may cost or how unpopular it is. This includes how we live. From Jeremiah 29, we learn the timelessness of truth, the timeless truth of blooming where you're planted. There's a reason that the Lord has us where we are. Like the Israelites in Babylon, we continue to raise our families, be witnesses of the Lord at our work and in daily lives. We show those around us our faith, not by words alone but we also back it up with our actions. First, we see this in James chapter 3, and we see it play out in dramatic fashion with the false prophets mentioned in Jeremiah 29. From this, we learn the value and necessity of true teaching. One need not speak for God on an issue that God does not approve. Likewise, one may not twist that lesson about lying to others about the words, what the words of God are. So, how does Jeremiah 29 fit with the rest of the book of Jeremiah? The short answer is that it's a turning point. It's a turning point from judgment to hope and filing to the nations being judged. More importantly, the seeds of the new covenant are planted and come into full bloom in the subsequent chapters. You see, up until this point, Jeremiah points out how the people had no desire to continue the reforms of King Josiah. As a result, they lost their prize, which was the covenant they had with Yahweh. Time and again, Yahweh warned them through Jeremiah, but time and again, it was ignored. They sought to be like the nations around them and participated in some of the same pagan practices. They sacrificed their children, were guilty of adultery and slander. Jeremiah became enraged and threw down pottery in Jeremiah 19 to signify the fate that awaited them in Babylon. Things got so bad that the Lord told Jeremiah that he would not hear the prayers of the people. His mind was made up and the people had to learn a lesson. 
Though the people were exiled in Babylon, the Lord speaks to Jeremiah and tells them to plant gardens. The garden was a big part of Mesopotamian agriculture. Let's not lose track of this. The people wanted to be like the neighbors around them. Here they were being told to plant a garden, just like the nation in which they were now living. Now, a similar adaptation of building and planting occurs with the call of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10. But it is also the opposite of the curses given for not following the law in Deuteronomy 28.30. With this in mind, Jeremiah 29 integrates in a vital way with the rest of Jeremiah's prophetic message. Through all the filth and vile that the people brought on themselves, there is hope. Previously, there was the letter of the law that was or was not being followed. However, the heart wasn't changed. After the appointed time, the covenant will be renewed, prayers will be heard again, and the people will seek the Lord. Seeking the Lord will be different than before because it's not going to happen on condition of promise, but it will be part of the promise. This is integral because it shows that the Lord does not break his promise, but like a loving father, disciplined his children. A new covenant will come that will be written on their heart, and they will strive to live it, not because they have to, but because they want to. And really, Jeremiah 29 is the canonical hinge that opens the door from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Well, my friends, that is a breakdown of Jeremiah chapter 29. I hope you find it beneficial and hope we can apply it to our lives. Uh, Tune in next week, Toast and Coffee. And we'll talk about how the church dealt with the Arian controversy in the third century, fourth century, sorry. God bless you. Have a great week.